The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, declared to the early Christians in Corinth these words. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Power. Our world revolves around battles over power. Who has it? Who will have it? How will power be used? Whether it be money influencing political campaigns or situations involving military might. Nations, leaders, from the playground to the workforce, our world, our society is constantly dealing with the issue of power. Power. By itself there is an edge to the world. Not sure how to react, to desire it or to cringe. One man, Andy Crouch, who wrote a book on the subject, notes that many have a hard time of thinking that power might be good, and he relates one woman's comment after a panel discussion. She said, I recognise that power is a reality, but I think all we can do is contain it and limit the damage it causes. What is power? One definition, the ability to control resources to secure one's own future. The ability to control resources to secure one's own future. And Crouch links his definition uh, with making sense of the world we live in, of creation. Power, he said, is simply the ability to make sense of this world. As human beings, we have a basic task. Our preoccupation and quest is to make something of a world that comes with no ready explanation, yet it throbs with meaning. Power, then, is about shaping the world for what it is for. Powerlessness is the opposite. It is being cut off from being able to shape the world. In its most extreme is the powerlessness of death. That's when the world may act on us, but we will never again act on it. To quote Crouch, we began not so long ago quite unable to make anything of the world, and we will soon be, much sooner than we can truly grasp, once again at the mercy of others' power to sustain us. And the moment after that, as far as the world is concerned, we will be gone altogether. We know that. We understand it. We recognise that reality. You could be the most powerful man in the world, but power is still very limited. In late 1963, uh, the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke in a church in London, which he referred to President John F. Kennedy. 
He spoke how Kennedy had been using his position for the purpose of unity and good. I quote, he was a man, said Lloyd-Jones, who was struggling and striving in various ways to bring men and women together. Dr. Lloyd-Jones referred to Kennedy because he was preaching the sermon shortly after the assassination of the US president. He said, we are in a world which is full of tension, full of divisions, full of strife, full of the danger of war. We're in a world that is divided up hopelessly, a world of unhappiness and pain. As president, Kennedy had immense power, but a bullet in Texas left him powerless. Lloyd-Jones didn't focus on his death as something that brought power to heal this world of unhappiness and pain. That would be absurd, foolish, folly. But the Apostle Paul, in the opening chapter of his first letter to the Corinthian church, connects power, the power of God, to the death of one man. And he regards that death as the very source of the power of God. And this morning, as we reflect, having heard those readings from the Gospel of Luke that account, that give the account of what actually occurred, this morning I want to share with you a reflection on what Paul is saying is indeed the very meaning of the cross, the word of the cross, the message of the cross. For Paul is clear about one uh, aspect of what he is doing, there is no doubt, it's not about baptising, he said, his task is to preach the gospel. And it doesn't even involve eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's the cross, the cross of Christ, where Paul's confidence lies when it comes to power. And Paul focuses on the power of the cross here in his opening chapter. And he notes how the cross destroys the world's wisdom. And the cross is the boast of those who are called by God. Listen to verses 19 to 25. For, he said, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here Paul highlights the way the world thinks and God's way of dealing 
with the world. The world thinks it is wise, that it knows best, that it discerns best. People don't need God. Paul is writing uh, almost 2,000 years ago, first century AD, and there is no question as we are traversing through the 21st century that that description fits our world today. The world casting aside the things of God. It thinks it knows best. And because the world thinks it knows better, it does not know God, says Paul. It does not need him. It discards God. And God's purpose is to turn over the wisdom and powers of this world. The first thing we need to realise as Paul speaks about the cross, as we, as it were, translate and reflect on what it is like for him to be writing this in the first century, he is to recognise there's a massive gulf that has occurred. For the cross is offensive. God used and uses the cross to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Our problem today is the cross has it's become familiar to us and we forget its offence. For us it's, it's something you see outside certain buildings like ours, a church, uh, or it's just an item of adornment, of jewellery. Not the place of execution. Be different if you had a guillotine there as your necklace. Now we've domesticated, we've tamed the cross, we lose what is being said. Crucifixion, it, it wasn't only execution, it was torture, it was barbaric. The Roman writer Cicero said it's a most cruel and disgusting punishment associated with torture, bleeding, nakedness, and agony. It was meant for criminals like that man Barabbas, who was the murderer who'd caused insurrection. In that account we heard in the Gospel of Luke, the scholar historian F.F. F. Bruce wrote, to die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were de deemed most unfit to live, a punishment for those who were subhuman. The cross for murderers, rebels, uh, provided they were also slaves and foreigners. It was, wasn't for your ordinary Roman citizen. It was an offence to the Romans and an offence to the Jews because in Deuteronomy 21, the Jewish law declared anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Jesus born a Jew, knew that. Yet, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. Scorning its shame. The cross was an offence, but Jesus scorned the shame. Because, as the Apostle Paul declared to the Corinthian church, 
the word is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. The word of the cross is the very means by which the world is shown up for what it is. It is an offence, it is foolish for Jews, they demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. An offence, foolishness, but says Paul, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here is the marvel. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, says Paul, that is the cross, to save those who believe. It's an offence. Jews, Romans, Greeks. But it was no offence to Jesus. It was the price he paid to save his people. He scorned its shame. And so the cross is indeed for us no longer an offence for us who believe, but the very revelation of the love of God, of the love of our Saviour, of the salvation that he has won. Paul describes it as the power of God. Is the wisdom of God, it is also the power of God. He goes on in verses 26 to 30, let me read them to you. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You see, the cross is an achievement. There's a, a book titled, What Was God Doing on the Cross? I, I love the, the two ways you can take that. You think about what was God doing on the cross? Paul speaks of Christ as our righteousness. The cross is the place where God is dealing with sin. Alistair McGrath, the Oxford theologian, notes that God does not redeem us in some kind of arbitrary and haphazard way. He does so in a way which fits with and matches his righteousness. 
And the key answer is seen in the way he deals with sin. And by sin, we're not referring to just a, a kind of small, petty offence, a, a rude word said here or an unkind comment made. No, sin is ultimately the offence against God, an offence which results in violation of the moral order of creation. Uh, let me explain a little bit there. Uh, by analogy, uh, from uh, McGrath's book, he said, if I were to kidnap someone and hold them to ransom, I would be guilty of a personal offence against the individual. But I'd be guilty of something greater, an offence against society as a whole, which rightly wants to discourage people from acting in that way. They don't want to live in a world where constantly threatened by being kidnapped. Private morality and public law cannot be separated here. And likewise with sin. Sin isn't just a private matter. It must be dealt with publicly. It threatens to break down the moral order of creation upon which its well-being depends. And so there is this issue, how can God forgive human sin without himself violating that moral order? You might ask, why can't God just forgive sin, have done with it? Why not just declare it all sin, past, present and future is cancelled and forgiven? Because that would be to deny the seriousness of sin. It would be to fail to safeguard creation against corruption and contamination. It'd be to make a mockery of the idea of justice, pretending that sin is just some kind of private matter of no public relevance. And this is where the cross becomes key and central. It condemns sin. It shows up its full seriousness. Sin, which might seem to be a trivial matter, leads to the state of affairs where God himself ends up being crucified. Those gospel readings, we see the sin of those involved exposed. Judas the betrayer, the chief priests, those who are accusing the people, Pilate and Herod, Pilate declaring he's innocent, but then sentencing him to crucifixion. So perverted and confused has the moral ordering of the creation become because of human sin, the creation ends up attempting to destroy its creator. Something radical had to be done to restore the harmony of the world, to cancel its guilt, in order that it may start again and break the power of the destructive forces within it. Yet so deeply is our creation and supremely our very human natures, so deeply are we caught up in sin that we can't get out. We cannot do it ourselves. It's like this bad debt that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger with no hope of clearing it. We need action from outside if we're to break free from that prison. And the cross is the place in history 
where a turning point is made. The enmity with God is ended by the cross. God's very relation to us changes. We are enabled to be at peace with him. Signified by when Christ died on the cross, the temple curtain at Jerusalem was torn in two. The death of Christ broke down the barrier of sin. The way has been opened up for us to return to God. And it was done through Christ who became sin for us. He who had no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. God did what only he could do. And so the cross is indeed the very power of God. The cross, God's wisdom, the cross, God's power. In all its offence, the cross is the means by which we can be returned to be at peace with our Maker. And so to conclude, what does it imply? What does it mean for us? The cross is God's wisdom, is God's power. And it means that all boasting is eliminated. Christ Jesus, your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, says Paul, and so it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul goes on to expand what that means as he speaks about Christ as our Passover lamb. You see, the Corinthian church was an absolute mess. They were filled with their own boasting and pride. Do you not know, says Paul, your boasting is not good? Cleanse it out. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The cross impacts the way you see yourself. So Paul, when he writes the quick this, you guys are nothings. You really know them. You here at Bellevue Hill, you are nothing. Sydney Siders, you are nothing. The cross demolishes boasting in mere men. Though, don't miss the point, it's less a focus on demeaning the Corinthians as it is of lifting up and exalting the Christ, the Christ of God, the one who hung there bleeding, mocked, humiliated, scorned to death. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The cross becomes our paradigm, our pattern for life, 
for faithfulness to God in this world, we too scorn the shame as we follow him. And Apostle Paul lived that out even as he wrote to the Galatians, speaking of what he boasts in, he said, Galatians chapter 6, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. In a moment we're going to sing one of the best hymns of the church. When I survey the wondrous cross, words written by Isaac Watts, boast about the only thing in all the world worth boasting about, ruling out all other forms of boasting. When I survey the wondrous cross, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. And there's one other verse that's not in our version today, which I share with you as I close. For it's based on the words of Galatians 6. His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Let us stand and sing when I survive.